Um, so spring's coming. We're changing our clocks next week, and we're, we're, we're moving steadily towards that moment. Um, so, hey, here's what we're doing this morning. Mark 2. We are ending Mark 2. We are going to begin Mark chapter 3. Um, I, I want to give just a few introductory thoughts to you for us. Uh, then I want to read the text, and then uh, we'll pray. And, and then just hop in and begin thinking about what's going on. Um, it, just by way of, of how Mark wrote this book, um, what we will be looking at this morning uh, is, is episodes four and five of a, a five-part um, conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And we began that at the beginning of chapter 2 that Danny walked us through where Jesus healed the paralytic and they broke a hole into the roof. They lowered the bro down. He was there. Jesus said, you are healed. Your sins are forgiven. And the ruling religious leaders had major issues with that. Then Jesus goes and calls Levi or Matthew. Matthew gets up and he follows him. He goes and grabs all of his, his irreputable friends to, to come and do the exact same thing. And so Jesus is dining now with, with sinners, with tax collectors, with murderers, with adulterers, with whatever errs you want to put in there. Uh, and the Pharisees have issue with that because he's now made himself in their eyes unclean. And then last week we looked at where Jesus uh, was not fasting nor had he indicated that his disciples were to be fasting. And there was questions in regards to, well, why are they not doing that when the Pharisees do that? And this morning in episodes 4 and 5, as Mark really, at the all of chapter 2 into the beginning part of chapter 3, we will look at uh, two different scenes, two different episodes of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees that really are just continuing to grow in their intensity. And this morning, they have to do with the Sabbath and what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath, what they, the religious rulers, believe he should be doing on the Sabbath that he is not, and how he is profaning the Sabbath. And we're going to be looking at those to see how Jesus responds. And we have some of the clearest language from Jesus to the Pharisees this morning about who he is. And so as we've tried to lay before you, Mark in his gospel account is putting before us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this morning, Jesus very clearly is going to articulate an outline before these rulers. This is who I am. And they're going to take a whole lot of issue with what he said. Let's go to Mark chapter 2. And we'll go verse 23. And we'll read through chapter 3, verse 6, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how we entered the house of God at the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And he gave it though to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." 
Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray, and then we'll hop into the text. Father God, thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for for those that are here this morning. God, we thank you for the crews. We've been, we've been praying this a lot, been thankful a lot for these men and women plowing our streets and putting cinder down and, and helping us travel safely. And God, we're grateful for them. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would meet with us in a special way as we look at your word here this morning. God, I pray that you would give, give my words accuracy to your word. God, I pray that you'd give my words clarity, that, that what I would say would both be correct and understandable. And God, I, I, I pray and, and we ask that you would come and do only what you can do and that you would meet us in a special way this morning and you would take your word and you would apply it into our lives and help us by your Holy Spirit to understand how we're to interact and think about these things from your scriptures. And God, we thank you for, for who Jesus is and for what he came to do. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, as we get going, um, I want to just kind of take a bit of perhaps an extended excursus to, to just think with you about what the Sabbath is, uh, because we're not going to understand the text this morning unless we understand the Sabbath, and we're going to need to understand a little bit of what the Pharisees believed about the Sabbath for us to even have really probably a shot at why they were so indignant uh, in regards to Jesus and his behavior. And so as we do that, I want to define something for you as we get going, uh, because this definition and this idea and this mindset is going to be what we see the Pharisees demonstrate. It, it's what we should not have as a mindset and an attitude. And it's perhaps, if you've had any experience with people of this mindset and attitude, left a bad taste of being a disciple in your mind. And so let's give you the word. We'll give you the definition. The word's legalism, and and you probably could come up with a good definition on your own. I just simply put there a a law-based system of man-made rules that bases one's relationship with the Lord on conformity to said rules and regulations. Uh, And so we're not against rules. The scriptures aren't against rules. I'm a dad. I am very pro-rules. Those are good in my house. Uh, But when, when those rules, whether they be the, the scriptures or whether they be what I place in there, when they begin to now be what I gauge and judge your relationship with the Lord on, these man-made rules, then, then I'm, I'm a legalist. And perhaps in, in more uh, modern, current, cultural terms, we could use the word religion. Um, so those of you that are younger would, would identify with that. Those not so young, maybe not, because the, reli- the word religion's not necessarily inherently wrong. 
but currently in our culture, the church has used the word religion much the same way as the word legalism is used. And so we're going to use this word because I think it has less hurdles for most of us. Uh, But the Pharisees were legalists. They had their set of rules, and they gauged and judged your relationship, or in this case, the disciples and Jesus' relationship with the Lord based on conformity to those rules. So let's just, let's just tease this out a little bit and, and think through some of the applications of this idea and way of thinking. Legalism is going to say that if you obey, you're good. And if you don't, you're not good. So you could only have to wear this type of clothing or this type of color. These could be examples of a legalist mindset. You should only listen to this type of music. You only should watch this type of TV show or this type of movie. You should only eat these certain types of food. Now, there, there could be wisdom in all of those things. And there will be really good reasons why this afternoon, Carrie and I are planning to go see McFarland USA and not Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, there is wisdom in determining what movies we watch. But the idea of going to the movies, the idea of music, these can all be instances where wisdom spills over into legalism and now we judge judge and we gauge someone's relationship with the Lord based on conformity to rules that I may have that I placed on the scriptures that aren't there to begin with. Let me give you some examples because the temptation of legalism as an attitude, as really perhaps a lifestyle, is I think well-intentioned. So I want to give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt. I think they were well-intentioned in what they proposed to do. They took God's laws and then they built a whole bunch of laws around it so that you wouldn't come close to breaking God's law. There's good intent there. But they, they erred in a lot of different ways because they removed the focus from God's grace to external conformity to a man-made rule or law. So let's just put this through uh, an example. The scriptures in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, say, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. There's, there's a principle there, there's a commandment there that we shouldn't be controlled by anything except for the Spirit. And so it could be prescription medication, it could be marijuana, it could be alcohol, it could be whatever you want to put in there. If that is controlling you, then you're in violation of that commandment. To be filled with the Spirit. The controlling force in our life is to be God himself. But don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. So the legalist would say, well, don't ever have a drink. Well, there's wisdom there. If you don't drink, you're probably not going to ever get drunk. So there's wisdom there. But they would go further and say, well, don't ever eat at restaurants where they serve alcohol. For X, Y, and Z reasons. Don't ever attend a social event where alcohol may be served. Don't ever shop in grocery stores that serve alcohol, which is not an issue for us here. But in Indiana, there's large sections of grocery stores devoted to the sale of alcohol. So that the legalists would say, well, don't ever go there. They may even say, don't ever associate with somebody who drinks. And, and all of those things in and of themselves aren't wrong, and there could be wisdom there. could be wisdom in all of those things. But the error comes when we judge and gauge someone's relationship with the Lord based on the conformity to those extra set of rules. The scriptures say, don't be drunk, but be filled. If I come to you and say, you're a bad Christian because you ate at Applebee's, I'm a legalist. There's issue there. 
because I've taken a man-made rule of don't ever eat at a restaurant where they serve alcohol, and I've placed it on you to now gauge and judge your relationship with the Lord. Now, we're not against rules, as I said. And parents, we do this all the time. We set up rules and guidelines in our home so that there is stability and there is safety and there's order. But the major difference, I think, between our house rules and perhaps the rules that a legalist would put on someone is that our house rules are for our children. They're for their best interests. They're for their good. When I tell Allegra to not push down Adelaide, it's for both of their well-being. The rules in our home are, are, are set up in such a way that to, they're to promote their flourishing, that they would learn and grow and develop in the most healthiest of environments where they're able to, to grow. Well, there's a big difference between those rules that are for my children and saying that my children serve my rules. And then there's a huge distinction in saying that Someone, or that Allegra stopped being my child if she broke my rule, or saying that she started being my child by obeying my rules. These are both the errors that legalism can fall off on. And so this is what happened in the Sabbath. In the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's called the intertestamental period of time. It was about 400 years. There was a layering and a deepening and an expounding of Sabbath rules beyond what the Lord had said in the Old Testament. And so we were going to look at the Old Testament laws, and then I'm going to read to you some of the uh, rules and regulations the religious leaders put on the Sabbath. And so Mike's got a screen there that we're going to put up there, and we're going to see that the Sabbath is, is actually mandated and rooted in creation itself. That in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, God created everything in six days and then he rested on the seventh. This is going to be the pattern that the Sabbath principle and commandment always comes back to. And so in Exodus 20, verse 8, 11, it's the fourth commandment. It's the longest of all the commandments. Basically, it summarizes to say, remember and keep the Sabbath holy. You're going to work for six days then you're not going to work on the seventh. And you're going to rest because God worked for six days and then rested. Now you get to Leviticus, which is really a book of law that that begins to expand and expound on uh, the Ten Commandments as the Lord's building out law for His nation, for His civilization. You're going to have 24 occurrences of the word Sabbath happening in the book of Leviticus. And then you get to Deuteronomy and Moses gives the Ten Commandments to the next generation. In Exodus, it was those that had been the adults that went out of Egypt and then 40 years of of wandering in the wilderness took place, and then you have the children of that generation that Moses is giving the commandments back to. And he says this, and it's basically the same as what he said in Exodus. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You're going to labor for six days. You're not going to labor on the seventh, whether you're a man or whether you're a beast. And you're going to rest because God freed you from slavery and brought you out of Egypt. There's a bit of a furthering of understanding and articulation in the Deuteronomy command where God actually is now going to ground part of the commandment of the Sabbath in the idea that they have been delivered. 
They have been freed. Where they had been slaves, they had now been set free. And I think there's also implied there that in Egypt, they never had rest. Pharaoh wanted them building 24-7. There was no rest. And so they rest because God rested, and they rest because God delivered them, and, and he says and gives them this gift of Sabbath as something to observe. John Piper says this, it's essentially as if God is saying, let my highest creature, the one in my image, stop every seven days and commemorate with me the fact that I am creator who have done all of this. Let him stop working and focus on me, that I'm the source of all he has. I am the fountain of blessing. That's the big idea in the Sabbath. We work for six, we rest for one, so that we, we do so because that's what God did and that's our pattern. And we do so because God has delivered. Now, that had be just in, in crazy ways been expounded upon. And there was this layering and, and further articulation of Sabbath rules and regulations that were man-made. And, and so the Pharisees would judge you not on if you didn't work, but if you obeyed their commands or not. And so uh, there's this book of Jewish uh, history and interpretation. Uh, think of it in, in regards to like a study Bible that we would have today. It's called the Talmud. And it was, it was written several hundred years after when Jesus walked the earth. But that book really served to clarify a lot of the, the rules and regulations and teachings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And that book had 24 chapters devoted to it that articulated the rules for obeying the Sabbath. So you get in the Old Testament and it just says you work six and you rest on seven. And you advance several thousand years and you have 24 chapters devoted to all of the different ways that this is going to take place. Well, let me give you some examples. Some of these are going to be humorous. Some of them um, are are just, you kind of wonder how they did anything. And perhaps that was the point. Uh, But you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet. Uh, Now, I walk as I preach, so I would probably be close to violating that one myself as I teach you this morning. Uh, But you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet in 24 hours. 3,000 feet, you had to count them. You couldn't carry a child. We've got a six-month-old. That would be difficult. No burden could be carried that weighed more than a fig. It's probably why you couldn't carry children. Uh, so you couldn't, like this iPad, I couldn't, couldn't pick it up, couldn't take it anywhere. Or you couldn't carry something twice that weighed half a fig. So we're still at the fig mark. If you put an olive in your mouth and spit it out because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole olive in the next time because your palate had tasted the flavor of a whole olive. You couldn't do that twice. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the other hand, it was not a sin. If you, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the other hand, it is a sin. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the same hand, it is not a sin. If a person was eating before sundown on Friday, which is when the Sabbath day would begin, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday was the 24-hour period of time, and you were close to sundown, 
and you reached out your hand to grab some food that last minute to go and get that fig into your mouth, and the sunset overtook you. You had to drop the fig, lest you carried more than that weight and broke the Sabbath. A tailor couldn't carry his needle, a scribe couldn't carry his pen, a pupil couldn't carry a book. Nothing could be examined, no clothing could be examined lest you found a bug in it and were tempted to kill the bug. Nothing could be sold, nothing could be bought, nothing could be washed, no fire could be lit. Warm water could not be put on cold water, but cold water could be put on warm water. Go figure. You couldn't make a knot, you couldn't undo a knot, and there are hundreds more of rules just like this that unpack and expound the Sabbath. And it was these rules and ones like it that the Pharisees judged, engaged, and determines one relationship with the Lord on. And so where you would not be in conformity to their rules, you were said to be breaking the law. And when your relationship with God is based on yourself and your obedience to rules, there is zero rest. There's zero rest. Because you're always wondering, have I obeyed enough? You're always second guessing, did I do something wrong? You perhaps are always getting involved and serving here at church because you think you have to. Because somehow God's more pleased with you and accepts you more because you're here. You're always doing something, but you're never resting. And the Sabbath was given by God to creation, both man and beast, for rest. That they would rest from physical labor and remind themselves of the spiritual rest they have in Christ, who has delivered them, who has delivered us from sin. So this was foreshadowed in the Old Testament and it was then further clarified in the New. And and so the Old Testament really uh, had its commands built out around physical rest. You see there in Deuteronomy 5, that physical rest was also, it wasn't so much a point forward as it was a point back to you rest physically because you remember the Lord delivered you from the hands of Pharaoh. We can fast forward to Hebrews where, and Curtis said it a few weeks ago for us, if you study Hebrews, you got to study Leviticus. And we, we understand that in the book of Hebrews, all of the Old Testament is a foreshadow of what we have in Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that for those who trust in Christ, there is a Sabbath rest. That because God rested from his works, we who trust in Jesus for salvation rest from our work. And it was a few weeks ago in our CE class that Kevin uh, was walking our class through this idea of Sabbath. And so this past week I sent him an email and I said, hey, uh, here's a Sabbath challenge for you. Uh, Take your entire two or three weeks on the Sabbath, put it into two or three sentences for me, go. And this is what he came back with, and it's, it's really good. Like so many other concepts in the Bible, the Sabbath is a physical practice that points to a spiritual reality. God created and modeled the gift of Sabbath to provide rest for our bodies and households. And observing this discipline then causes us to remember and reflect the eternal rest our souls find in Jesus. So we're, we're right for Sabbath rest to characterize our lives. 
we're right for that principle to be seen and demonstrated in our lives because God did so after the days of creation and we're, we're told that Sabbath points us forward and reminds us of the rest we have in Christ. But nobody on any biblical authority can stand before you and say, don't carry something heavier than a fig. Some of you couldn't carry your Bibles around because you got some weighty texts with you. You you just see how you, the legalist is going to just spill over and put rules and regulations on what God had said. And they're going to take good things that God gave his people and they're going to twist and they're going to distort and they're going to so lose the intent and the heart of what God had originally wanted and said that they just become unhelpful. So it's really on that backdrop that we've got to go now back to Mark 2 and understand perhaps why the Pharisees were so indignant at what Jesus did. So let's go back to verse 28, or 23, excuse me, of Mark chapter 2. So one Sabbath, here we are, it's a Saturday, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, if you've got a KJV, that might say corn. The word there that was written can refer to, to really one or the other. And so it's, it's some type of grain, whether it's a corn or barley or whatever. We don't know, but there you go. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees had determined that going through a grain field that plucking heads of grain was not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, here's the interesting thing. Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, actually has provisioned in it the, um, the allowance of what the disciples are doing. Verse 24 of Deuteronomy 23 said, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat all the grapes you want, but you can't take any with you. So you can't put them in your pockets But if you're hungry, you can go into your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat, and then you can leave. Well, 25 says the same thing about grain. You can go into your neighbor's field, you can pluck heads of grain, you can eat them if you're hungry, but you just can't reap them, and you can't stuff your pockets full of them, and then carry them away. They would be stealing at that point. So the disciples and what Jesus are doing are well within the bounds and commands and structure of the Old Testament. But... They're not obeying what the Pharisees had taught. And so the Pharisees come and they say, Why are you not obeying and doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so Jesus answers them. Have you never read what David did? Think about those words. Have you never read? How inflammatory of a statement is that to men that spent their entire lives memorizing all 39 of these books? Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God at the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with them. Guys, have you, have you never read? Now, here's the entire point of why Jesus cites David. Because what David did was unlawful to do. But Jesus is saying, I'm greater than David. 
that king that you love, that king that you uh, admire, that king that you're anticipating and waiting for the Messiah to come from his line and lineage, I'm greater than that man. And what he did was unlawful, but you have no issues accepting what he did because he had a need And you had no issues with the priest giving David the bread and the disciples the bread. And here you've guys got issues with us and we're actually doing what's in conformity to the scriptures. The bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread that would be placed before the altar in the tent or in the tabernacle. um, That every Sabbath were replaced with 12 hot fresh loaves of bread. And the, each loaf was to represent the 12 tribes in Israel. They were, they were prepared and they were brought in by the priests and set before the Lord. And they would stay there for a week. Then they would be removed. Hot, fresh bread would be brought in. And then the priest and those in the priesthood could eat the bread after it had been removed. And this is what David did when he and his mighty men are fleeing Saul. They went in and they, they stumbled onto the tabernacle and they went to the priest and said, We're hungry. It's been two or three days since we've eaten. Do you have any food for us? And the priests only had the bread of the presence, the show bread, as it might be called elsewhere. The priest gives him the bread. David gives it to his men. They did what was unlawful to do. And here you have the Pharisees criticizing Jesus for doing what was lawful to do per God's standards, but unlawful per their own. And they're criticizing and critiquing. And Jesus answers them and gives them the illustration and the question of regards to David. And then he is going to make some very, very inflammatory statements in 27 and 28. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Matthew, in his gospel account in chapter 12, records this very same episode. And right after he records this, he records the very same episode of conflict that we'll go to in the very beginning verses of chapter 3. What's interesting is at the end of chapter 11 in Matthew, right before he records what Jesus is doing that we're looking at here, he utters those famous words, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and I will give you rest. At the very heart of what is happening here is the, is the absence of rest. Jesus was saying to those in Matthew 11 that the teachings of the Pharisees, they're, they're not going to ever give you rest. It's a heavy yoke. It's a heavy burden. You come to me. You believe in me. You take my yoke and burden upon you because it's light and I'm going to give you rest. So when he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he is challenging every one of their laws in that single statement because their laws existed not for the benefits and the betterment of the people. Again, I think it was well-intentioned, but they erred. And then they erred greatly when they began to judge, engage someone's relationship with the Lord based on conformity to laws that were not in God's word. What's at the heart of the whole idea and concept of the Sabbath is rest. 
And then Jesus in 28 says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was their favorite commandment. It was probably the easiest one to build out rules around if you think about it. And they did. 24 chapters of it. And Jesus came in with one fail swoop and said, that's all, just nothing. Because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I make the rules. I determine what is right and is wrong. What is the correct interpretation and application of the Old Testament. It's highly inflammatory. But I think we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, is rest a part of our lives? Is the Sabbath principle a part of our lives? Now, the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that was not recommanded in the New Testament. You have all the other nine recommanded. The Sabbath is not. But, What we do have in regards to the Sabbath is Jesus saying that man-made rules and regulations about the Sabbath do not hold any weight, but the principle of Sabbath rest should still be true in our lives because it was made for us, not us for it. And so rest in our lives is important. Working six days, resting on the seventh, having that rest be a time of of physical rest, of mental rest, of, of being reminded of the spiritual rest that we have in Christ. I mean, what Kevin said was just dead on. It was, it was a principle that, that gave our bodies physical rest and pointed to a deep spiritual reality. And so the question I think that needs to just be asked here, if, if the Sabbath is for us, Is it true of us? Is it a part of our lives? Now, we're not going to put rules and and regulations on it because that's what the the Pharisees did. That's what the legalist wants to do. I think we could simply just say, are are you resting from your work? And Sabbath for me looks like really long runs. So maybe he's not physically resting but I, I sit at a desk a lot. So to be able to get out and, and run and exercise, that's restful, oddly enough. I sleep far better after I run several miles than I do without it. And so there's, there's rest in, in being able to not be restful, I guess. And, and, and there's, there's a break from, from work in that. And, and Jesus is saying, look, that those principles, this should be true of all of us because it's a gift to us. The Lord wants us to pause and to stop and consider who he is and what he has provided and that we don't have to labor and toil around the clock 24-7, seven days a week because he has promised to provide. We should rest in him. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made as a gift for us It was made for our good. It was given to us as a gracious gift from the Lord. And it should be true of us. These things should be true in our lives. Well, Mark then continues to record in chapter 3 that Jesus entered a synagogue and he leads off with the word again. This is probably a week later. At least it's probably a Sabbath. It's not the same Sabbath. So here you have Jesus. It's a week. It's a two week. It's, it's, It's later on. He entered the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they, this would be the Pharisees, they watched Jesus 
to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent and he looked around with, at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored. But look at the response. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. There's a few things happening here, and if we're just real honest with one another, I think we could say that there is, a, there is an absurdity to legalism. There's an absurdity to legalism. There's an absurdity to those that want to place their rules and, and conformity to their rules as the highest priority in someone's life. There's an absurdity to someone saying, if you broke one of my rules, you're no longer good with the Lord. There's an absurdity to what we see happening in the response of the Pharisees. So let's just look at a couple things. First of all, Jesus spoke. So when he healed the man, all he said to the man was, stretch out your hand. Who was speaking in Mark 2, verses 23 to the end of the chapter? Jesus was speaking, but the Pharisees were also speaking, right? They were asking questions. So there's an absurdity in there where they're condemning Jesus for for just talking, which is exactly what they had done a week prior. But then there's a further absurdity in that they recognize that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal, but they fail to submit to his power and authority. There's an absurdity to that. There's an absurdity to legalism that says, you broke my rule, we're we're done. And it's an absurdity that fails to recognize who actually Jesus Christ is, what actually the gospel is. There's an absurdity to that when you can recognize the power and authority of the Lord and refuse to submit to it because it doesn't fit your system. That's absurd. But then there's a third absurdity in this text. The Pharisees left the synagogue. They went and got the Herodians, which were the political rulers. And so you have the political rulers and you've got the religious rulers. And what do they do? They, they sit down on the Sabbath. And they plot how they're going to kill Jesus. How absurd is that? We can't heal a guy. We can't take some corn or take some grain and feed ourselves. But we can plan murder. We can premeditate this. How absurd is that? There's an absurdity to legalism that sees adherence to its own rules and regulations as the highest priority, and anything that falls short of that standard needs to be destroyed. It's absurd. And so some of the ways legalism is absurd in, in broader strokes is that legal looks, legalism looks to self for justification before God. But the gospel looks to Christ. And so Jesus came preaching the gospel. He came and said, repent and believe in the gospel. Rest from your work. And these men 
were doing nothing of the sort and leading others to do nothing of the sort because they were looking to justify themselves before the Lord because of what they did. Legalism may use the word gospel, it may use the word grace, but it doesn't act graciously, nor does it truly believe in the gospel. Legalism creates slaves. The gospel frees us from slavery and makes us adopted sons and daughters. Legalism is a heavy yoke and burden. The gospel gives rest. Legalism says continually, do this and be accepted. The gospel says, it's finished. It's by grace that we have been saved. Not of our works. Legalism is going to say, conform and you're out. The gospel says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Legalism motivates based on fear. The gospel motivates based on joy. Legalism results in external conformity to man-made rules. The gospel results in inward transformation where we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. There is a vast difference between the messages of these two groups and what Jesus came preaching and teaching and what the Pharisees and the legalists were demanding of those who were following them. And there's an absurdity to legalism. There's an absurdity to that. Now, there's, there's wisdom and rules. But there's an absurdity when we say, you adhere to our rules or you're out. You look like us or you're out. You eat what we eat or you're out. You listen what we listen to or you're out. It's absurd. And as a church, we, we, we can err in this way corporately if we're not careful. We can, we can create and place some of these rules on, on what it looks like and means to come here and, and be a part of this body if we're, if we're not careful. And they, they can have the appearance of wisdom and it, it just down the road is, is legalism. And we have to be for grace. We have to be for the gospel. And so what guards us from legalism? What guards us from this attitude, even in our own personal lives or corporately as a group of believers that gather, is continually placing our focus and our attention back on the gospel. It's continually reminding ourselves of what is true in the gospel or what is true of us because of the gospel. And so when we use words like Christ-centered preaching and we use words like gospel-centered, it, it, it's, it's really bound up into the heart of this matter. It's because I, I think there's probably something inherent in all of us, especially those that take a high view of, of God's word. And a high view of, of wanting to, to, to not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Is that we can very easily slip and go, well, if we don't want to be drunk, then we can't ever go to Applebee's. And then we can go and say, you can't ever eat at Applebee's if you worship with us here. There's, there's temptations to get there. And what guards us from that? is reminding ourselves continually of the gospel. It's reminding ourselves of what Jesus came to do. It's reminding ourselves personally that we we have to rest 
And we rest because God rested and because he gave us rest as a gift. But we rest because it pictures something spiritually. There is rest from work and trying to earn somebody's salvation when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. It's not the heart of a legalist. So we have to be real careful as a group that we don't add and and build out these layers of of laws that then we gauge and judge other people's relationship with the Lord based on. We have to be real careful in our hearts that we don't do the same thing. Because very easily we we can say, well, I didn't do my devotions this morning. God must be mad. Or, this would have been my favorite one, uh, I did my devotions this morning, I'm going to have a great day. We can be, I know I can be, just real superstitious about these things. And when I gauge and I judge my relationship with the Lord based on what I do, it's legalism. Rather, it should be based on what Christ has done. So in Christ, God has lavished his love on me. And it has nothing to do with what I do. It's because of what he has done. And so in that, I'm now free to serve. I'm I'm free to love. I'm free to obey. I'm free to, to, to do all of these things because there's the dual principle at work where obedience to God's law actually leads me to joy and I get to do it because I'm not earning his love. So there's no rest in believing that you have to work for God's love. But there is great rest in serving because God has loved you. And that is a huge distinction. So what guards us from being legalists in our own lives and corporately as we gather here together is remembering time and time and time again the gospel putting our eyes and our focus back on what Christ has done. So as we respond this morning in song, we're going to do just that. And we're going to sing probably two of my favorite hymns, one of them being Cornerstone, where the opening words of verse 1 is, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that, that's the gospel. That's where our hope is. It's not built on my conformity to somebody's rule they came up with about the Sabbath. It's built up on Christ. Its foundation is on Christ. And so the band is going to lead us in singing that song. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all as well. And I, I just, I encourage you to, to respond. To sing these gospel truths and just sing them with, with all you got, because this is our hope. This has got to be what we place our focus and our attention on. So would you stand, and we'll sing together.